City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. Okay, City Limits, we're on the air and um, we've got Namilla pressing buttons this morning. Morning, how are you? Good morning, well, very nice. And Namilla, you, you've actually, you're in, I don't know about how temporary it is, but you're, uh, you're here as the new breakfast coordinator at the moment, um, replacing Ronnie, who's gone off, of course, to Canberra to study. That's right, wonderful, wonderful Ronnie. Yeah, and you're yes. also from PNG, though. Or you're, he's not, he's from West Papua, but you're same island anyway. Yes, that's right. Yeah, exactly. So same big island in the Pacific. So we're representing the Melanesian peeps that's here right. at 3CR. We're it's, a ta- it's a takeover. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Emma Warren's here next to me. Hello, Emma. And I'm Kevin Healy, of course. And Corey uh, Green, unfortunately, can't be here. She's, she rang last night about 9.30 to say she was feeling nauseous, and I pointed out to her that if, if she was feeling like throwing up, then talking to me wouldn't have helped. But uh, anyway, uh, we, um, but wish her all, if she is listening, wish her all the best. Hope she's feeling okay, because she was feeling quite crook last night when she rang. Um, so, Namilla stepped in, and thank you very much. No worries, yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. Look, just um, a couple of things. Oh, of course, it's energy day today, and so we'll... Um, and we're going to, as promised last, we're going to be talking to Janine Rayner. Janine is the, um, she has the official title says he's looking for it desperately but not being able to find it. But I think she's called the Senior Policy Officer, I'm sure she is, at the um, Consumer Action Law Centre. Mm. And um, we're going to talk about the fact that we keep hearing about people not being able to meet the utility bills and they're going up all the time. Despite it, privatisation, we'll promise they would all go down. It was going to be much cheaper, but... Yeah, and we'll be talking yeah. smart meters. And smart yeah. meters and all sorts of things. So we're going to talk to her about uh, those consumer issues around, um, or perhaps a number of other things as well, but primarily around those energy issues and gas, electricity and, mm. and water for that matter at this stage as well. Yeah. So that's coming up at about 20 past or so. Uh, but on, on energy, oh, what's the pouring of the oh, tea? I forgot, Emma, a cup of tea, tea, I presume? Yes, yes great. Please. Yeah, Namilla's already said no to this, by the way. We have to pour it near the microphone, Namilla, so people yeah. hear it. Sound effects, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Well, Foley, it's, Foley. It's sound effects, and we know there's some listeners whose whose bladders go to pieces when they hear it. So we um, how very thoughtful. Yeah, it gets so, people out of bed, does it? Yes, it does. Or behind bushes if they're out walking, listening. Yeah. Um, so there we are. That's the pouring of the tea. Um, yes, look on on energy issues. The bloke who's who's um, who's been a given the, the honour of having founded fracking, etc., a mm. bloke called Aubrey McClendon, uh, you'll be sad to hear, was killed in a car accident this week. Um, poor old Aubrey, he went off. Um, oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was quite proud of himself. He really got stuck into it. And he was negotiating at the moment to... Um, he, he sold Chesapeake Energy's U.S. shale gas assets to BHP Billiton at a near top of the market $4.75 billion in 2011 and recently acquired oil and gas fields in the Northern Territory. Um, unfortunately, uh, on Tuesday night last week, he was indicted by the U.S. Department of Justice <laughs> for conspiring with a comp- competitor to suppress purchase prices of oil. And that, anyway, he was he was going to be charged with with crimes, um, corporate crimes that would end up with about ten years in prison oh, wow. if he was found. Yeah, so the next day he, he died in a, well, he got out of it in a car accident, but they said the car rammed full pelt into a wall, so people suspect he probably killed himself. Yeah. But anyway. That's, uh, and I'm not sure that Aubrey's going to be a, a massive loss to the <laughs> world of people. Um, and another great person, of course, in this area, Martin Ferguson, the former uh, so, uh, Labor minister, who now works, of course, for the uh, for the resource industry. He um, he says unless the Northern Territory and the Labor Party in Northern Territory changes its policy about the new pipeline which they suggest might have the odd environmental risk. Unless they do that, it's catastrophic, and we face catastrophic gas shortages. So Martin's true to form, that's all I want to say. <laughs> and uh, he's attacking the unions again, of course, which he always does. Uh, I better have, I'm going to have a sip of tea. Oh. Hang on a tick. Yeah, yeah. Ah, negative gearing. Yeah, negative gearing. We're on to that now. I, I raise this because 
Last week we noted that um, BIS shrapnel, um, perhaps the B should be a P in that case, but anyway, um, they, um, BIS shrapnel, they came out with this report that said the Labor policy, well, they didn't quite say that, but it was interpreted that way, the Labor policy on negative gearing would cost, oh, it's going to be the end of the country as we knew it. The oh, economy yes. would go in absolute free Collapse. fall. It's going to be absolutely terrible. Yeah. It turned out that somehow the day before... Uh, Morrison, the, the treasurer, was alerting the media to this coming out, and no one knows who, who commissioned it, by the way. Mm. And he came out and made this mad, attack, terrible attack on Labor, etc., etc. Now, I raise this just because the way the Herald Sun operates, I mean, it, mm. you know, they never bother to say we were wrong. They just um, then just ch- they just turn their policy, they just turn their position around overnight without mentioning what they said yesterday. But on the day that Morrison came out, they had a news pr- story up front about how negative gearing and Labor's policy was going to destroy the country. Mm-hmm. They had a full half-page feature in their business section with a negative, pr- with a whole thing telling you what was going on and a story about limiting negative gearing will shrink the governments, etc., etc. And they raved on and just, like Morrison, just went on with the, as if the BIS shrapnel report was absolutely, absolutely mm. gospel. Mm. Now, of course... Even some other quite conservative economic think tanks on the right came out and said, "Look, having a quick look at it, you know, it's, it's absolute crap. You know, not only are the are they fig- not only is the result wrong, but they're based on the wrong assumptions, etc., yeah. etc. Plus, of course, it was written long before the Labor Party policy was announced. All that stuff." But the Herald Sun, true to form, having the day before done exactly what Morrison did, <laughs> next day had a feature article across the centre, ScoMo shrapnel wound, oh, Scotman, and then they get stuck into him and they go on to say, um, oops, Morrison suddenly ended up with an exploding cigar in his mouth. There was further intrigue too. Uh, Hawtrey, who's the bloke from the company, would say only a client had commissioned the work and had chosen the timing of its release. He couldn't name the mysterious client, but said it wasn't a political, etc., etc. And no one, you know, they didn't, they wouldn't confirm that Morrison knew it advance, etc. But the report was pitched to some in the Canberra Press Gallery on Wednesday by Morrison's tax advisor. But there they go. So the Herald Sun one day prints it along with Morrison, next day a tax him for saying what they'd said the day before. Yeah. Well, it is the Herald yeah. Sun. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that sums it up pretty well, yep. really. <laughs> well put. Um, another sip of tea. Hang on a tick. Mm. All into this. Um, last week also, and this is one that's intrigued me for some time, mm. when the government um, put out the, um, the the pokies and the um, and the gambling industry to tender after Tats and um, the TAB had had a monopoly or a duopoly, mm. I guess, uh, for a long time. Uh, the company sued the government for not giving them the contract. And I always okay. found that fascinating. Yeah, that, you the know, gambling contract. Yeah, like if it's a contract and you've done your contract and the time's mm. up, um, can you sue if you don't get it again? They give it to someone else. Now, they claimed that mm. the previous governments had had a con- had a, a clause in the contract mm. about if it was terminated, etc. Um, and they went to court. TAB lost, but TATS won. Hmm. And um, they were awarded five hundred and forty million of our money oh. for doing nothing except uh, not get the contract. That's ridiculous. Yes, very good. As if they didn't need any of it. Yes, five forty million. Wow. Um, the High Court, though, last week, they, the government appealed to the High Court. This is the state government, by the way, as, hmm. as you realise that. Hmm. The the, um, the government went to the High Court, and last week the High Court ruled in favour of the government and. Tats has to uh, Tats lost its four hundred five hundred and forty million, which is pay a, it back. Well, trad- well, not really, but got it because the appeal was on, I suppose. But they anyway, yeah, they yeah. Uh, they certainly didn't get it. And uh, <laughs> which, but I just find the whole thing incredible that they yeah. they have the audacity to say because you didn't give us the contract, even though we the first contract has run out, yeah. um, we therefore deserve all this money. And in fact, in the in the age, I think it was. Well, it was last week or this week. One day recently, Ken Davidson's latest column anyway, he mm. he had an article about just those facts, that the government is signing all these contracts where there's clauses that if, for instance, with the casino, if they set it, if a rival turns up, mm. the government has to compensate Packer mm. massive amounts of money. Um, it, it, the port deal now, they've agreed to the same thing, mm. where they, they'll compensate if another port is set up. Wow. The people who buy the port off the government and why you know, we shouldn't be selling it anyway. Um, 
have to receive massive compensation. The same thing here with this thing. Uh, the same thing happened with City Link. I don't know if people are aware, but oh. there's a clause in the City Link contract that if a, if a, if an alternative turned up. Or if the government built another road or even public transport that competed, they had to compensate the company in billions and billions of dollars. And yeah. it's, just, it's just pretty extraordinary. Uh, I've got a feeling that somewhere along the line, the one about public transport in terms of an air, a, a, a railway to the airport has been has been excised somewhere from it. But, Is there a plan um, for a railway to the well, airport? There's always a plan. This never happens. Yeah. Um, the, uh, well, they have all sorts that, of inquiries. They, they have inquiries into roads and discover they have to build them. Yes. They have inquiries into, like, under, I think when Batchelor was minister here in Victoria, they had an inquiry into the airport. And the main thing about that is what, what route do you take mm, and there's a number mm. of possibilities uh, but they rejected it anyway uh, but you've now even got because the road's so clogged mm. you've now actually got the private company that now runs the airport and why that's private I have no idea either but mm. anyway um, the private company is now pleading for the government to put in a rail line mm. because um, the congestion on the freeway to the airport and, and in the airport itself is just so bloody yeah great. it's awful so there you are. Uh, anyway, that, yeah, that's really interesting yeah. of the compensation on contracts. Mm. Yes, yes. Mm. Um, now this one's um, this one's an interesting one as well because um, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, uh, which is a at, at, at least at face value a bloody good scheme. Yeah. But the federal government is desperately trying well, no it claims it's not but mm. it's it's taken actions that would indicate it's trying to water it down mm. and um and maybe declare certain conditions not eligible okay uh, they 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 so say particular disabilities yeah because at the moment it's funded by the states and the federal but more by the states than the federal but mm. the current federal minister uh, a bloke called Porter, I think his name is, yeah, um, Christian Porter, <laughs> interesting Christian mm. bit. Um, in, anyway, in papers presented to a meeting of federal and state disability ministers on Friday, the federal government has put forward a detailed proposal to simplify the management of the scheme, mm-hmm. which in fact would allow it to change key definitions of who is eligible for support and give directions to the agency that runs the scheme, and they want to they want to change it so the federal minister has the right to appoint the board and make all sorts mm. of decisions, and the states are carrying on about it a bit. Um, but um, it says um, the proposal opposed by states would, for example, mean that in future the federal government could define without consultation who can be covered by the mm. scheme, what can be included in participants' care plans, and what constitutes reasonable and necessary support. The reasonable and necessary support, and that's in parenthesis mm. definition, does not only affect what services are available to disabled people, but has knock-on effects to the states as services cut out of the NDIS have to be picked up across other state support systems, including health, education, public housing and prisons. Well, that's pretty obvious. Although putting dis- people with disability in prisons is a pretty smart idea. Um, and it goes on, but, mm. um, you know, it's... Um, it, it's pretty pretty worrying because it, it, it does is. sound like they're going to yeah, they're trying to save money on the scheme, and one way of doing that is to declare certain people aren't even eligible even yeah. though they've got a disability. So, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. It doesn't surprise me. No, no it doesn't. <laughs> no. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's awful. So many yeah people need that money desperately. Yep. That's right, and and their services actually. Mm, you know, and, and, and the services. It, I mean, yeah. it's been run on a trial basis so far, mm. and it's about to expand nationally. But but um, if it if it gets up and works properly, it's going to be of enormous benefit mm, to people. Definitely. So we'll see what happens. Let's hope. Um, and you'll be pleased. Now, I just thought I'd mention before we guess before we go to Janine. Uh, I just thought I'd mention in passing that Donald Trump, who um, we all know is one of the great minds of this world. <laughs> um, he wants to reinstate waterboarding. I didn't realise they'd stopped. They'd stopped it. But anyway, um, that uh, water, and he thinks they should. Now he also thinks um, he wants to bring back torture because the the other people are so bad and you know, they're terrible. So we will torture them. Um, and he's advocated the killing of suspected terrorists' wives and children. 
which oh, even no. this article says appears in violation of international law. I would have thought so. I hope it does. Anyway, if, if it doesn't, there's something wrong with international law. Um, and we have to play the game. They're playing the game. Oh. We have to play the game the way they're playing the game, he said oh, on God. Sunday. Trump, I'd no, like, no. Yeah, we can better compete. And on he goes. Um, and one bloke said, but isn't that what separates us from the savages about this, some of this stuff? He said, oh. no, I don't think so. We have to beat the savages. We have to play the game the way they're playing the game. So good old Don. He wants oh. to bring, yeah, that's right. But um, yeah, and, and really, I mean, they do it anyway with their drones at the moment that yeah. we know that they're killing people and many civilians and innocent people, in particularly in Pakistan and parts mm. of Afghanistan. Um, and presumably they would be the wives and children of the suspected terrorists anyway. And it's suspected, of course. I mean, you're not saying you've proved they're a terrorist. Yeah, yeah. If they're a suspected terrorist, suspected. well, you've got a right to kill their family. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, God. Trump. Trump. <laughs> How has he become so popular, yeah. though, in American yeah. politics? Yes, it yes. really, really does my head yeah. in. Yeah. He yeah. kind of carries on like, you know, uh, your drunk neighbour kind mm. of thing that just yeah. randomly yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. shoots off his mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah he does. It, I mean, he never no says logic. anything. No, that's right. There's mm. no, there's, and there's no connection. Yeah. What he mm. said today, you might say the opposite tomorrow. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. All right. Oh, here we go. If People Powered Radio, an exhibition celebrating 40 years of 3CR. From the 18th of March till the 23rd of April, the exhibition will feature new work by contemporary artists, rare audio, 3CR ephemera, archival posters and photos, live on-site broadcasts and music events. Come along to the opening night, Friday, March 18th from 6pm at Gertrude Contemporary Art Gallery, 200 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy. For more information visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au. Hi, you're um, listening to City Limits on 3CR, um, and that song that we were just listening to was River Road by Kev Carmody. Radio, and we uh, we did fade old Ken Kev away, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> like all of us, he's been fading away from welfare old Kev. No, he's going all right. Um, on the line, Janine Rayner. Janine Rayner is the Senior Policy Officer with the Consumer Action Law Centre, and as we promised last week, we said we'd talk about some of the issues around electricity pricing, etc. Uh, we might go into some other things as well, but primarily we're going to look today, because it's this sort of day on city limits at, at our utility bills and the fact that we were promised years ago, in fact, that privatisation, uh, the government told us they were privatising it because we'd all be better off, etc., etc. Um, Janine, thanks for coming on. Are we better off? Good morning, Kevin. Uh, uh, there's a lot of debate about um, whether we're actually better off. Uh, we can see in Victoria that prices have gone up and that they continue to go up. So there does seem to be a problem with um, what is pr- uh, framed as competition. Um, whether we're getting the competitive outcomes of having a privatised and contestable market. Mm. And, um, in fact, one of the arguments against um, the SEC and the Gas and Fuel Corporation at the time was that they were vertically integrated and you had to break them up into distribution and all sorts of things and retail, etc. Um, but what we've seen since is that so the biggest of the companies seem to be vertically integrating anyway. So, uh, so is vertical integration in their case OK? Well, that, that's right. I mean, we did see that was the impetus behind the um, privatisation and um, distribution businesses who own the poles and the wire are still um, government-owned or um, regulated entities. And the um, wholesale uh, aspect of the market, so the generators, are actually vertically integrated with the retailers, so the people you see selling you energy on your bills. Um, there is a benefit for those businesses. There is a direct market if you are a generator and you can sell through a retail arm or if you're a retailer, you're guaranteed access to good prices for the supply of the energy that you're selling. Um, it does create problems, though, because if you aren't a vertically uh, integrated retailer, for example, it's very difficult for those businesses to gain access to um, good supply prices for their customers. And so it does put pressure on, on what they can do um, in terms of offering competitive prices across the market. And on those prices, can we just have a quick rundown because um, when they introduced privatisation and then later the national grid, uh, there's all sorts of complicated ways in which in which prices are regulated, but they seem to work very well for the companies. Can you just explain a bit about how that operates? Right. So the wholesale market, uh, so the generated um, energy, is, um, which is about 30% of your bill, is, um, is done through a financial market, so an energy-only financial market. 
um, the the poles and wires and the transition transmission lines, so the very big um, towers that you see um, when you're driving out in the country, um, are still regulated. So they go through a regulatory process where their costs um, and their operational expenditure are all um, agreed and determined to be of a certain amount. And that part cost is um, passed through to consumers on their bills, and that's um, about 34% of your bills. Um, and in the retail prices, so in 2009 in Victoria. Um, up until then, prices were regulated and were determined by um, a, a regulated process to, to see what um, the price should be for customers. But since 2009, um, price regulation has been um, scrapped and now the retailers are able to set the prices as they like. And so we're looking at around 28% of the bill based on retail margin and retail costs. Mm. And because there was that cap which got lifted and that that meant that suddenly consumers were, were open to all sorts of fluctuations. That's right. So yeah. prior to deregulation, it was a standing offer, and so we knew that that was a good uh, baseline offer in the market. And there were a number of consumer protections that were linked to that actual standing offer. And what we're seeing now is that there are what um, businesses call market offers. So they're a deviation and a move away from the standing offer, um, and the prices are very variable. Um, but also it means that in the consumer protections that were aligned with the standing offer are also traded away. So consumers are, by benefiting from a different price or a lower price in a market offer, are also trading away some of their protections by getting that price. Mm. So, so we're, seeing, we're seeing that a lot of customers who are getting the better prices aren't necessarily getting the protection they need mm. when they are entering into a period of financial difficulty. Mm-hmm. And yet they tell us, of course, that... Uh, now, one of the reasons people are paying too much is they're not shopping around. If you shopped around, you'll do a good deal. Is that Does that follow necessarily? Uh, well, we have for, for years now been told that Victoria is the most competitive market in the world and that's because people are switching retailers mm. and um, driving competition down. But the reality is that it's very difficult for customers to um, identify a better product for them. Mm. Um, The information is very difficult to compare. There are switching sites and the Victorian government does have a very good one called Victorian Energy Compare. Mm. Um, But it's really hard even with that level of information to the customers to really engage and so switching is still a difficult process just because of the inherent nature of people's inability to make decisions or unwillingness to make decisions because of too much information Um, and so that's not necessarily driving high rates of switching Mm. which is not therefore not um, travelling through to the retailer's bottom line. Mm. And are people wanting to switch to power companies that seem or appear more green? Is that a trend that has been happening? Um, There's definitely uh, a large number of customers who prioritise purchasing green power. Um, And thankfully to them, they're driving some of the innovation in in the green power space. Um, There are a couple of products in green power and I think yeah. there's a lot of confusion around um, what that means and yeah, what it is. Yeah, there's and, a lot of confusion, um, yeah. Yeah, um, and so the difference that is in the market at the moment around green power is mm. there's green power accredited and green power non-accredited and okay. basically non-accredited applies to um, old hydro, for example. So there are no mm-hmm. emissions associated with it but it's not promoting new innovation or new, um, new technology whereas mm-hmm. the accredited green power is generally wind and solar and and new hydro like micro hydro that's um installed and and the you pay a little bit more on the accredited green power it because it's promoting um investment in and and researching and and um the development of new technology so we are trying to build that part of the economy yeah 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 um, but also, of course, on that, um, you have the irony that, say, Origin and AGL as two good examples are companies that keep saying they want to invest more in renewables at the same time as they're opening new coal mines yeah. all over the place and <laughs> LNG, etc. So uh, there, there's yeah. a bit of hypocrisy running yeah. around, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's still um, evolving in the market, and I think they're trying to work out where their identity lies as well. I think that there is an obligation on them under the Renewable Energy Target to have a certain, especially under the Paris Agreement, to have a certain level of um, renewable energy Mm. on the ground by 2020 or 2030, sorry, and um, it's not a lot of time to get um, base load um, generation. So these are like, we're talking large solar plants or mm. um, wind farms. To be able to provide a uh, high, high enough level of supply 
so that they can start to take the coal fire offline or the gas fire offline mm. um, and and make it a, a, a viable, um, I guess, product. Yeah. yeah there was a... In fact, there was a report in the last week or so that uh, unless we really move very quickly, we're just not going to even meet the the pared-down version of the 2020 target. Um, So it does mean there's a bit of urgency required. That's right, and I do know that the businesses are grappling with this. It's very much, you know, in their interest to get it happening, Um, but there's a lot of investment decisions that need to be made to enable that to occur. Mm. Um, But certainly, you know, in the longer-term interest of our uh, society to, to have that happening, so it's not a not a bad outcome and it's just a drive for those businesses to move a bit quicker. Yeah. And I notice um, so many people these days are putting solar panels onto their roofs. How does it work with um, that energy feeding back into the system and people being able to keep track of that? Um, so this is a good question. There are a number of different solar products that are entering the market Um um, but certainly, traditionally, people have been buying their solar panels outright. Yeah. Um, then through the meter, and Victoria has got smart meters, which have enabled, although, although having a solar and smart meters has had a bit of a um, teething problems, they yeah. are pretty much um, resolved. Mm-hmm. But it means that there is a, a, a way for that information to flow about what information is going, what energy is flowing into the grid and what they're drawing from the grid. So yeah. that should be transparent on the meter and therefore um, on the bill. Um, and certainly um, with batteries that will change and there'll be other mm. information that will be necessary. But that's definitely the way that things are moving and a lot of people are very interested. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah, it was interesting. I was coming back from the train from Geelong now, this new stupid route you have to go via, um, the other day. But I noticed there was one stretch around Tarnedal going toward Deer Park. Where it must have been, a, I reckon it was about two whole kilometres where I only counted about two houses that didn't have some sort of solar panel on their roofs. They, mm. So I was, I was quite surprised at the uptake out in that part yeah. of the world. Yeah, It's amazing. That's you should right. go to Castlemaine. Pretty much every household in Castlemaine has a solar panel. Mm. Yeah, yeah, so we're looking at a million households in Australia that have solar at the yeah. moment. I think that's the correct um, figure. Yeah. Um, and the, the things that occur with that, um, we think that um, certainly this is a really strong uh, statement by a lot of households Definitely. who are saying that they are fed up with um, their current situation. Mm. Um, we do see a number of um, problems with some approaches by marketers of solar, for example, mm. and installers of solar. So there are still some teething problems going on around how people are understanding what they're buying mm. and, and whether it's fit for purpose or whether the solar panels are enough for their supply arrangements, yeah. um, or whether there's complications with the installation that have meant that there are other issues, so it's the damage to the roof or something. So there's a number of things that are still coming to light around the, the quick uptake of solar, mm. but certainly... The, the shift is on and a lot of people are very interested and we're already seeing um, the batteries being bundled into some of those solar products. I mean, Origin and AGL already have that available. Um, so that's mm. the next wave. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And but, so by batteries, do you mean um, people can store the power on site and they do not need to correct. be connected to the main grid? Um Well, theoretically, they don't need to be connected to the grid, but at mm-hmm. this stage, um, it's perceived that it's not entirely viable mm-hmm. um the the solar um <coughs> excuse me the the solar panels need to be generating enough energy and the battery needs to be able to store enough energy yeah. and to be, you need to be able to draw enough energy from the battery when you need it so it needs to be um a balanced relationship yeah, yeah there yeah. is still value in, value in being um connected to the grid um you are unfortunately at this time your protections, your consumer protections, are still linked to your connection to the oh, grid. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, if you if you are un- um, not connected to the grid, or even if you have solar and you're not connected to the grid, your solar and battery um, do not uh, fall under the consumer protections that your normal energy supply would fall okay. under. Yeah. Um, and at this stage, um, they don't fall under your dispute resolution option. So you mm-hmm. can't go to the ombudsman if you've got complaints about solar or battery at this stage. But you can if you're remaining on the grid and you've got a retail supplier. So yeah. there's still some some benefits of being on the grid and certainly just for security at this point. Yeah, yeah. Yep. All right. We're talking to Janine Rayner from the Consumer Action Law Centre. Janine, there was a. There's been a dispute in recent weeks. Also, the the companies themselves want people all to move on mass onto cost reflective pricing, and the government has said no. People should have a right to opt into that or not, or stay on their mm. current tariff situation. Um, now they've been attacked by the industry. The government's had some support from consumer groups. So, what what's the situation there? 
I was hoping you wouldn't ask me this. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll go back. We're talking to Janine Rayner from now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very complex area, and that's the reason why the government has stepped in, because the, um, the tariffs that they're looking to introduce are part of the distribution business's tariffs. And um, to introduce cost reflectivity is to remove the cross-subsidisation that occurs in the network. So we all pretty much pay the same price, but you know that your neighbours might have three air conditioners and you have none, so you're actually subsidising your neighbours. Mm. Um, and they're, they're looking to re- remove that cross-subsidy, and which is not a bad thing. It's a good thing because if obviously you're a low-energy user and you shouldn't be paying as much as your neighbours who are a high-energy user. Mm. Um, but the way that they've, um, they've proposed to do this um, or they've been instructed to do this through the rules is to develop a demand tariff um, or a cost-reflective tariff, and they came up with a demand tariff, which is very complicated, but it basically looks at, for example, um, in, in a month, the half hour that you, you use the most energy. Um, and then they based a, a price on that half hour. And that would be included in your bill. And that's another layer of complexity that consumers aren't ready for, I believe. Mm. Um, we often don't understand the way our bills are constructed at the moment. No. And introducing a demand tariff onto our bill, which... The, the messages that need to be around this is not to use all of your appliances at once. Um, it's very clear message, but the tariff itself isn't very clear and won't communicate that effectively to consumers. Um, so the government has developed its opt-in approach. Um, we believe a transitional approach to these tariffs is important, so the opt-in at this stage is welcome. Um, but the, we also need to educate and um, inform consumers as to what this tariff is, how it would work, and and really importantly, what the benefits are for why we're doing it. Um, and cross, removing cross-subsidies is one reason, but it might be also, there might be other benefits of reducing overall demand if mm. people are using less energy at the time. But those things are very difficult for consumers grasp when we're having difficulty grasping some of the basic concepts mm. of the market as it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's easier said than done. How do you educate people in these things? Yes, um, well, that's a very good question, and we know that through this, uh, the smart meter rollout, that there are some basic principles that need to be employed, and that is just informing consumers of, um, I guess, the objective, the vision behind the movement, the cost and benefits of of any initiative like this, and and it's about, I guess, it's frequency and recency of information that's provided and that, that they can relate to, and, mm. and simple messaging. Um, mm. So it's very important that we trying to talk to, um, in, in, in some respects, the lowest common denominator, because if we get that right, then everyone will understand um, yeah. um, what's available. And, and that could just be really simple simple terms, but I'm not a marketer, so I can't, yeah. I can't come up with the answer. <laughs> no. the, you know, there's a couple of points been raised, of course. You mentioned about the fact that people who haven't got air conditioning are, are subsidising those who do. But from our earlier conversation also, if if people take up solar to the extent we're talking about, then those who can't afford it, low-income people, could end up having their costs rise as well, couldn't yeah. they? Yeah. That's right. And we are forecasting this as an issue mm. um, because if low-income consumers or renters even can't access some of these products um, mm. because because of their circumstances, they're unfortunately going to be excluded from some of the benefits of these new products. And mm. um, we believe that there are some... Um, steps that need to be taken to ensure that access to these products is provided to all consumers and that those that are um, restricted from accessing these aren't penalised by higher network costs or just high products that, that are di- differentiated to them because they aren't able to access um, the competitive products that are going to be pushed through the market. Um, it is it is something that's going to start to emerge and we are aware of that as an issue. Mm. Mm. Definitely. Um, I was reading something about um, there's going to be flexible pricing um, happening soon. It's part of the smart meters, so it means people can use electricity um, in off-peak or on-peak periods. Can you That's right. tell me a little bit? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I can. Um, now, when smart meters were installed and through to the end of the rollout, um, there was uh, initially a moratorium on businesses being able to offer flexible prices, Mm -hmm. um, except for where people wanted to opt in and use it. Um, Because, again, there's a level of complexity that people needed to understand. Um, um, I think the the concept has been communicated through a campaign that the government ran um, when the moratorium lifted. Um, Basically, flexible pricing is um, similar to time of use in Mm -hmm. that 
Um, there might be four or five different prices for uh, over four or five different times of the day. Yeah. Uh, you might have a, a morning um, off-peak and then a morning shoulder and then a peak during the middle of the day, and that yeah. might go to quite late at night. And so it's about when flexible pricing is supposed to be about bringing awareness to when you're using energy and yeah. encouraging you to shift your load so that you're using your energy in the off-peak time. And that is really around reducing peak demand and yeah, yeah. trying to reduce the strain on the, the network. So yeah. um, there are still, it is um, difficult for people to shift their load. There's a lot of study that's been done to show that different households uh, would be would have difficulty responding to yeah, um, yeah. different tariffs at different times of the day, just from the nature of being at home or might, yeah, might going be to young work. Kids, for example. Yeah. Yes, or being out of the house in the peak period, you could benefit from it. So, yeah. Um, there, there are benefits to some households, and they they need to do the analysis individually. And mm. and again, the Victorian government website, uh, Victorian Energy Compare, would enable you to do this. And mm. um, I'm not sure how much your listeners are aware, but when you have a smart meter, you're also able to access and um, all of your smart meter data, and that's available in half hourly intervals. And so, if you were to take that to your retailer or to put onto this website, then it will show you um, mm. where you're using your energy the most and then what, what kind of tariff might be the best for you. Mm. It sounds a little bit convoluted, but it actually, um, if you have the time and the, <laughs> the propensity to do it, then yeah. you would see some benefits. But it is, it is an obstacle for a lot of people because it is difficult to, to grasp. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure there's heaps of lifestyle advantages in getting up at three in the morning, do the washing and cook the tea. <laughs> um, enormous. You, you tell me, when you find out, you tell me. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, also, uh, moving on to gas, because more, you know, people always thought, and we always have thought, that gas was cheaper, and so you, you had gas hot water, gas heating. Uh, but it's now reached the point where it's as expensive and may become more expensive than electricity, so we're not benefiting there mm. at all. And this is due to the fact that we're exporting so much of it offshore, and those prices reflect are reflected here. But uh, this is a further problem for norm- normal consumers, I would have thought. That's right. So it no longer became it's no longer the cheaper option, and a lot mm. of people had have gas as well as electricity because there was a, a push um, 15, 20 years ago to try and get Victorians onto gas. So a lot of households have it, um, and certainly more than in any other state in Australia. Um, and so now, if we are looking at high standing offers, sorry, high fixed prices, which is your daily um, charge that you're charged for being connected to gas supply, and then you're paying more for the use of your gas, then it, the question will start to enter people's heads. What's the benefit of me having gas as well as electricity when the electricity fixed prices are so high and the cost of using energy is so high? Um, the, the, the decisions people make around appliance replacement will start to be informed by gas costs versus electricity costs. And you mm. might move to an electricity-based or a solar-based hot water system instead of a gas, mm. or you might um, replace your gas stove with an electric stove. But those decisions are going to start to filter through to household decisions. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's you have some no, no, no. okay, um, and also also of course well, that's a major problem. But also water now we see um, it's while well, it's not privatised as such, but it's certainly corporatised. Uh, we're now what well, well my information my belief has been that ever since the desol plant was built, we've been paying some extraordinary amount per year anyway, not to use any of it. Um, but now that we talk about the fact we might use some of it, we're going to have to pay even more. Uh, It seems a pretty extraordinary situation. Yes, the reality of rising gas and electricity and water prices is that the overall impact on each household is significant. Mm. And um, as these costs build and they are rising, um, and salaries or um, uh, government allowances are not rising at the same rate, then it places a lot more pressure on the cost of living for consumers. And Mm. that's translating into... Uh, financial difficulty on a range of these products as well and um, that's something that we're becoming more cognizant of um, as as these um, prices flow through to customers. Mm. Well, that brings um, us to what... And then I guess, yeah, go on, I guess, go on. Yeah, sorry. I, I was going to say, yes, this does bring us to, I guess, a lot of the, the clients that we see at Consumer Action are presenting with um, a difficulty paying for their... Mm. Um, Utilities mm. bills, yeah, the, um, yep. and so we we have uh, a role in assisting these people and and, and telling them what their rights are and what, mm. what they can do and helping them work out what they can afford. Mm. And is that mm. a certain age demographic, like are elderly people struggling to pay more so than like? Are you noticing any demographics there? Um, well, certainly, people who are in receipt of New Start, um, okay, yeah, around. 
$506 a fortnight, which we believe is um, not adequate no, to cover the cost of living. Not. So we see a lot of um, a lot of clients call in and they are unable to pay their consumption of their energy and they are accruing debt with their business businesses. Um, yeah. um, but also we are seeing people who are working who mm, and don't workers. have yeah. high incomes. And, and so it is starting to drift into um, low-income brackets as well where people are working and, and doing their best to contribute to their bills, but they mm. still can't keep still them can't. under control. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a couple of things that we do try and help them with when that occurs, and that is obviously uh, making sure that they are accessing any concession that they're eligible for, and that's very important mm. because that does bring their bill down by 17.5%, um, and also making sure that they have spoken to their retailer to see if they're eligible for a utility relief grant, which mm-hmm. um, is $500 on any amount owing over a period of six months, so people can bring down some debt in that um, mm, regard. Mm. Um, and we also help them to um, work with their retailer. Uh, their retailer should have put them on a, an affordable payment plan, um, but certainly if um, that hasn't worked, we will advocate with that customer to to speak to the ombudsman to try and resolve that issue and try and make sure that the the way that the bit they're being billed is affordable to them because they can't actually afford um, to pay the way that um, they traditionally would if they could cover their consumption. Yeah. In fact, there was a report in the last few weeks that a record number of people last year were cut off water. And that sounds pretty serious. And mm. uh, it does. I mean, I know, I think we all know that when you get your water bill, the, the cost, the, the rec, the cost you're stuck with that you can't avoid far exceed your actual usage anyway. That's but right. That, so, yeah. Just, yeah. The clarification just for um, listeners is that water doesn't get um, cut off, so to speak. It gets restricted. Mm. So we um, allow, they allow some water flow because just a basic hygiene, so toilet flushing or some, um, water for drinking but it's not much um, mm. but it does limit their ability to, to have water. The, the real um, alarming figure last year was the cut off of um, electricity which is like 50,000 um, connections in Victoria which is significant so is. Uh, the wa- water is um, a concern but uh, electricity was also alarming because it's highlighting um, the, the very depth of the problem mm. of um, or the breadth of the problem of people having difficulty paying for their utilities. And if it, if it affects water, it affects electricity and gas. Like it, there's a relationship between the two. Mm. Um, so it does signal that there are problems for people maintaining supply. Um, and just while we're talking about that, I think um, I should highlight that um, the, the organisation I work with is Consumer Action. We have a financial counselling, um, an independent and free financial counselling advice line, um, and consumers can contact that that. Um, uh, service uh, on um, 1800 007 007 um, so that's 1800 007 007 so if they're experiencing financial difficulty of any type um, give our financial council the call and they can help you work through some of those financial difficulties to see what your options are and how you can try to set the path forward um, but that's something that we are seeing a lot of and it's partly to do with you know, high energy prices. Mm. Yes, and of course, as we started out saying, when when it was privatised, we were told well, we're going to be better off and we're going to all be lowered, but no one seems to believe that anymore, <laughs> I don't think. Um, the, other, the other thing <clears throat> that's been lost since privatisation is, is people's trust. I mean, we yeah. have seen that, you know, we expected better outcomes, so consumers become increasingly um, unable to trust their businesses for, to deliver them the best and fairest products in the market. And so there's a couple of things that have been lost. It's high. We've gained higher prices and we've lost our ability to trust those businesses to deliver the service at the right price um, faithfully. Just on business attitudes, I just wanted to bring you toward the end of this interview to an article that was in the Financial Review on Monday by a bloke called John Colburn, who's the former CEO of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. He's now with, he's now a consultant with Freehills and a y- another young lawyer who's just done an honours degree co-wrote this article. But it was about um, the Australian, or better say the name, the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, uh, talking about bringing down laws to look at the culture of business and uh, whether people, people in upper echelon, should be responsible for those who commit crimes further down the line. Um, and they say that's a terrible thing, and they oppose it violently. But they have one paragraph I found fascinating, and I, you might be able to clear it up for me. Did I get it wrong? They say ASIC also views corporate culture as including good conduct, which in turn includes acting in the best interests of customers. 
It is unclear how this fits with the duty of directors to act in the best interests of the company, particularly where these duties conflict. Now, are they actually saying that the the responsibility of business is to itself, to its shareholders and customers come along last somewhere? Well, I think that they're saying that they, I think they believe that customers should be part of the good conduct, um, not necessarily the shareholders. But I think that holds particularly true in energy because what we are seeing is that these businesses are essentially providing access to households to an essential service. And yet they do are privatised. They are private companies that have obligations to their shareholders. So it's a very split role. And whose interests are they really representing? Are they trying to raise profits for their shareholders or are they trying to really look after our Victorian um, Victorian supply, so making sure that Victorians can maintain access to energy and, and participate in our economy and society on equal terms. That is a very vexed issue um, and something that I think businesses and governments and consumers need to start to work on because increasingly if people are having difficulty maintaining supply, um, what role do these, do these businesses have in um, making sure that they are continuing to access supply, or are they driving profits? It's a very, very interesting question. Mm. Because they are called essential services, and they are, I suppose we'd argue there's something the state should always have kept control of, of course, for that reason. Mm. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And then, you know, it will become an increasing um, issue as um, solar and batteries do come on. Mm, definitely. We, we, we touched on before, I mean, if we do need to ensure that all customers, all consumers in Victoria, have access to um, an affordable energy supply. The other conflict, of course, and it comes into it comes into the whole climate change debate that we've argued about on this program ever since privatisation is that even though they make noises about their commitment to uh, conservation, etc., their prime purpose is to sell more and more power. That's right. Um, there are some businesses entering the market which are trying to um, do the right thing and trying to encourage consumers to use what they need and no more. Um, but they're a, a new sort of business model. But traditionally, businesses are set up to sell energy. That's their model. Um, it's not in their interest to introduce too many energy efficiency devices. Um, they don't want people to use less. Mm. But in the, on the, the flip side of that is if customers can't afford to pay what they, for what they're using, it's not working for those businesses either. So they need to find uh, an approach that accommodates those, maintaining those on supply while also making money from those customers that are the least it can. Mm. Very, yeah. very, very complex. Okay, Jane, just to finish, and I want to go off this area, but and, and this is a question without notice, but I'm sure you've got an answer to it. Um, the, the spate of uh, online selling and people like Uber and there's all sorts of online gambling, etc. does that create new problems for people like you? Um, it certainly does. Um, we see uh, that there is a, a range of issues around just the typical regulations that apply to the businesses that are on traditional business models. Um, and the same protections may not apply to customers. And, and as I mentioned earlier, the same dispute resolution options may not be available to customers who are accessing these new services. Um, and so consumers need to make informed decisions about if they do use these services, what are their rights and are they able to um, resolve complex complaints if something arises? And, and in many cases, that hasn't been... Um, finalised at this point or hasn't even been agreed as a way forward but certainly if you are unsure or you feel that you may not be able to um, self-advocate or um, make complex decisions, perhaps stay with a, a more reliable or more secure model but if you are confident that you're able to engage and then, then why not? Mm, yeah. And well, okay, we'll finish there. But um, you gave that earlier number one eight hundred, uh, wasn't it? 007, 007 for financial 007. advice. Double O seven, yeah. That's right. Um, for financial um, advice, but just the general number if people want to contact your organisation if they want help on consumer issues. Uh, is there a contact number? Um, it's good if uh, they contact that number. There is a. Um Advice line. I don't, I'm afraid I don't have it on me right now. I'm apologise right. for that. Um, the, <laughs> no, the and I've only, the, I've only got the switchboard number, number in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the financial counselling helpline will direct you if you find that it's more um, consumer based issue and yeah. you need additional advice. But we do provide a legal service as well, a legal advice service. Yeah. So if you are encountering com um, consumer issues around other products like insurance or um, credit cards, then, then, and then call through to Consumer Action and, and the financial counsellors can. Can, can help with that too. Okay, look, Janine, thanks so much for your time this morning. We've gone gone for ages, but you've been it's wonderful to give yeah. you so much of your time.
Thank you. That's all right. Okay. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, thank you. Okay, Janine Rayner, who's, um, as we said, she's the Senior Policy Officer with the Consumer Action Law Centre. There you are. Mm, it was interesting. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's lo- I mean, there's other stuff too. I, I found an interesting point um, in terms of consumerism, things like free-range eggs and free-range oh, yes. chooks. and yeah, yeah, all, that all the foods. That, that wonderful company that, that treats workers so badly and don't never buy your chickens from Coles or Myers <laughs> no. or Woolworths because that's where they come from, I think. Um, but um, Kelly O'Dwyer, that wonderful small business um, minister, she um, she's currently seeking a report into how, how we can get a definition that um, that covers the free-range uh, thing. Yeah. But she said, consult, and you know, it's something that people have been fighting with for ages, but they just keep having more inquiries mm. and moving on. She said, consultations with producers, farming and consumer groups would continue until the end of the year. A cost-benefit analysis would then be prepared before a meeting of consumer affairs ministers uh, next February. But a cost-benefit analysis, we know that if for consumers, the cost-benefit analysis is that you get the whole thing organised and you get, if you're going to buy free range, it's mm. really free range. Mm. Um, so one can only assume the cost-benefit analysis is to say if the, com- if the companies can't afford it, we won't do we it. Won't that do would it. be my interpretation. Yeah. Is, that, is that unfair, do you think? No, Emma? I don't think so. No. A piece of A4 no. paper No, Miller, no, is that unfair, bird? do you think? No. I don't think it's unfair. <laughs> I think it's perfectly reasonable. It's unfair. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Well, that's where you got him one agrees. <laughs> okay, that's City Limits for the day. Namilla, look, thanks so much. Now you thank yeah. Namilla for thank doing, you, yeah. thank you for coming. Pleasure, on pleasure. Yep. Thank it's you. Nice to have you. And yes, filling in, and we hope Corey's back next week. Hope she's yeah. feeling better. Um, the very sight of us doesn't cause this nausea to come on again. Yeah. Um, and next week you've next got a week. guest. Um, yeah, it's housing next week, yeah, of course. Yeah, housing, and, and I will be speaking to El Caspi from the Housing Tenancy Union. So right. And we'll have someone in from the Housing with the Aged Action Group okay, as well, yep. um, probably um, probably uh, April Bragg, and they can, yep. they can fight it out They can the fight studio. it out and we can sit back. <laughs> we'll sit back and watch them. <laughs> we did get a call during that. I don't know if it's, a, if it's a she or a he, it just says a pensioner, who called in and said that she or he has a smart meter, but for the 24-7, it's on maximum tariff. Now, I don't know if that's the case or not, but anyway... Just thought I'd report that because someone did ring in to give us that report. Mm. Maybe they need to call that um, helpline. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Say goodbye. All right. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next week for housing. Right, gentlemen. This panel is now on air. In July 1976, from an old warehouse in High Street, Armadale, 3CR Community Radio hit the airwaves heralding 40 years of independent, community-owned and controlled radio. This will be the first station owned and operated by a cooperative of community organisations on a Melbourne-wide basis. This is 3CR. As the status quo of old media is challenged, as publications come and go, in a country with the highest concentration of media ownership in the world, 3CR continues to broadcast radical, insightful radio 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're not talking about land rights, we're talking about sovereignty. That's why it's important for us to be at the 10 Embassy. From the protests against the Franklin River Dam to the 1998 waterfront dispute, from the east-west tunnel picket to the Aboriginal 10 Embassy, the history of 3CR is dynamic and passionate and ongoing. I was born here. I will die here. I am not moving. So as we celebrate 40 years in 2016, we ask you, our volunteers, listeners and supporters, to join in in saying, Happy Birthday 3CR! Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.com. Dot org dot au.